0: please turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're continuing to look into some of the wonderful narratives of the Old Testament that give us insight into the character and nature of God and also the character and nature of man. We find as we look into these stories about the character and nature of man is that man often does not understand God, that man often is disappointed, discouraged, angry, rebellious, and all kinds of other words that you could come up with to describe a, an improper attitude towards the God who runs everything after the counsel of his will. Even the best of men are only men at their best. Last week we looked into the life of Elijah and we saw a hero of the faith. Today, as we continue in the life of Elijah, you're going to find out that even the best fall down, and that our heroes are just men, and that the true hero of the Bible is none other than God himself. As great as Elijah was, he was not able to finish the job that God had intended for him to do, and Elisha was chosen to be his successor, the one who would carry on the work that Elijah was not able to do in his weakness. Let's have a word of prayer before we read the scriptures together. Father, we come to you this morning as we have previously in this service, recognizing that you are the one who is the source of every good and perfect gift. And as we have prayed, we pray again that you would give me the words that will speak to the hearts of each one of your children and that you'll open up the hearts of the people who are gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ here to receive the word implanted, which is able to save our souls. May this morning, as we look into the life of Elijah and the contrast with King Ahab, may our hearts be encouraged. May our hearts grow strong in faith so that we do not burn out, so that we do not fall into a spiritual depression, but that we are renewed in confidence and joy, carrying on with the work that you've given us to do with full confidence in your goodness. We pray for our good and for your glory. Amen. Well, God has given the people of Israel everything that they need. As you continue from the Old Testament beginning with the call of Abraham, you find that God fulfills his promises to Abraham, giving him the land, the seed, and the blessing of having the true God, the creator of heaven and earth, as the God of his special people Israel. And as God gave the people of Israel his holy law, he gave them the promised land, He gave them his chosen king, David, and his descendants. He gave them his presence in the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And yet all of this was not enough to keep Israel faithful to the Lord. Mankind, no matter how much God is gracious, no matter how much God gives to them, the sinful heart of man is never going to be faithful to God until God brings the ultimate blessing of regeneration, the new birth. The blessings that were yet to come for the people of Israel prophesied by their latter prophets in the new covenant and which we now are partakers of those blessings. God has sent the blessing of regeneration, the new birth into our hearts, so that we can respond differently to all that God does in our life. We have been blessed in order that we may obey, but the people of Israel did not obey. And we've come to a crisis point in the history of his people, as we look into the history of Elijah's time and King Ahab, that all throughout Israel's history, you remember, we talked about last week, that they were tempted by Baal worship, the worship of this Phoenician Canaanite deity, Baal, that he was always a temptation. But it is at this point that King Ahab and his wicked queen Jezebel are pushing the worship of Baal as the official religion of the people of Israel and are actually persecuting the true prophets of the Lord. And so Elijah comes onto the scene for such a time as this, and he has the showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel where God wins the victory. And that we were reminded in our scripture reading that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And once God had demonstrated to the people of Israel that Baal, the storm god, had no power to bring rain, or to bring anything for that matter, but that the God of heaven and earth could send down fire from heaven, and he could send down rain from heaven, so then God could bless his people with the merciful gift of rain without the false god, the idol, stealing the credit for it. And after that showdown, and the death of the 400 prophets that Jezebel had fed from her own riches as queen, I think Elijah expected that there was going to be drastic change among the people of Israel. And when we set our expectations up, and then those expectations aren't met, well, that's when a man with a nature like ours shows what a nature like ours is prone to. seems like very often that once we have a great spiritual victory, as Elijah experiences on the top of Mount Carmel, that we have to be careful that we are not setting ourselves up for a great spiritual fall. This seems to be a pattern that we find in the lives of God's children that we can go up and then we can go down just as quickly because we are not as stable and we're not as full of faith as we might like to believe. So how will the northern kingdom of Israel respond? Well, apparently nothing changes right away because you pick up the text there in 1 Kings chapter 19, our outline today. We're going to be looking into 1 Kings really just 19 and 20. I'm going to save chapters 21 and 22 for next week. We're going to be looking further into the life of Elijah and Ahab, starting with Elijah fleeing from Israel all the way back to Mount Sinai. And so we'll pick it up here in the first four verses. Follow along in your Bibles as I read it out loud. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, If I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah had fought for the Lord and now he's flying. He fought and now he's got his flight. The flight is because he is intimidated by the woman, the queen, Jezebel. She has not repented. She has hardened her heart and she has sworn an oath. Elijah does get away. He does escape. But as he escapes, he falls into a despair. Now, you have to appreciate Jezebel on some level. She has a fierceness, she has a resolve that Ahab doesn't have. Ahab seems to be kind of just a milk toast kind of guy. She's got a lot of backbone, and she's got a freshness for battle that Elijah no longer possesses. It seems that this happens sometimes, that those who are zealous for evil somehow have a greater fierceness for battle than those who are zealous for good. And we get wearied out, and we get tired, and and we give up, and, and we want to just die. But you don't see that with those who are promoting the worship of Baal. She's got as much strength as she ever had. We want to have the strength to stand up for what is right. Now, as we look into these verses... You see that Elijah goes out into the wilderness by himself. He leaves his servant behind. He goes and he sits down under a broom tree. Now, if you're interested in what a broom tree looks like, I've got a picture here for you. It looks like a broom. There it is. and You can picture Elijah going out into this wilderness by himself, sitting down under this broom tree and saying, I'm done. When he says, it's enough, it kind of gives you the idea that he says, I'm spent. I've given everything I have and nothing really has changed. The people of Israel seem like they haven't really made a real turn. The king hasn't made a turn. The queen hasn't made a turn. And Elijah is like, I give up. I gave everything I had and nothing happened. Now, when Elijah says, Oh Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's, here we see that Elijah is a second Moses. In this crisis point for Israel, God raised up a prophet, unlike any prophet that has yet come into the scene, who's got to be the forerunner for all the prophets who are yet to come in the Old Testament. But the one that he goes back to as the prototype is Moses. And you know, in Moses' life also, he despaired and wanted to die. Go back to Numbers chapter 11 in your Bible. You can keep a marker there in 1 Kings 19. And come back into Numbers. This will be the first of many parallels that we've seen between Elijah and Moses. And back in Numbers chapter 11, I'm going to pick it up in verse 10. Here the people are complaining because they are tired of manna and they want some meat to eat. And Moses is the head of this nation that is out in the wilderness where there's very little provision aside from God's miraculous provision of the manna. And Moses, in verse 10, he heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? Have you ever asked the Lord that? Maybe not in those terms, but your heart was in that condition. And he's like, God, why are you treating me this way? Why are things happening the way that they're happening? Why haven't you done things differently from the way that you're doing them? And Moses is crying out and saying, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. Do I find favor? Do I not find favor? God, why do I have to bear the burden of all those people? Well, this is the heart of a man with a nature like ours. And anyone who has been toiling and busy and zealous for the Lord is going to get to this point at some point in their life where they say, God, why haven't you answered my prayer? God, why hasn't this situation changed? I know it's your will, I know your word, I know your plan. Why is it not happening? And we get tired. We get worn out. But we shouldn't. I'm not giving Moses a justification for his attitude here, and I'm not giving Elijah any justification for his attitude, and I'm not giving you any justification for your attitude or myself. When I feel weak and weary and burnt out, when I start to fall into a spiritual depression, there's no good reason for it. Moses is not thinking clearly. Elijah is not thinking clearly. And I think we can learn a lot about not only ourselves, but also how to help other people when they fall into this type of mindset. And one of the things I want to encourage you with is this, that it's not easy to help someone who falls into this mindset And don't think that you failed when you try to encourage someone and they remain discouraged. Because even the Lord, when he encourages Elijah, Elijah is still discouraged. Then don't get mad at yourself if you can't do it. It's not easy to pull people out of these spiritual doldrums. That's why we don't want to let ourselves get there in the first place. So come back to 1 Kings. We're going to continue reading then in verses 5 through 18. And see God's response to Elijah's despair. So Elijah, he lays down and he sleeps under the broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Then he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel, this sounds familiar, right? Moses was complaining about the people of Israel. Now Elijah's complaining about the people of Israel. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mehalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. We'll stop there. Now, how far is it from Beersheba, in the wilderness that's slightly outside of it, to Mount Sinai? Well, we're not exactly sure where Mount Sinai is, but we have a pretty good idea of several possibilities, and it could be up to 250 miles. That's a long way to go on foot. And so God gives him a miraculous strength from this meal from heaven, That God himself bakes on these hot stones, or an angel bakes on these hot stones, and feeds him a second time, and sends him on this journey, 40 days and 40 nights, to the mount of God. And here again, we see the parallel with Moses. Moses met God on the mountain, this mountain. And that Moses was on the mountain, alone with God, 40 days and 40 nights. So there's definitely parallels that God is setting up here between Moses and Elijah. Now, for those of you that were a part of our Old Testament survey that's on pause, we'll be picking it up again in September, you remember that when Moses sinned against the Lord, when he failed to believe in the Lord and he allowed himself to get angry with the people, he struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And this was a dishonor to God that he allowed his anger to cause him to disobey God and to express his anger and frustration, his self-righteousness, before the people. And that because of that sin, God said, you're not going to be the one that's going to lead the people of Israel into the Promised Land. You're not going to be able to complete your mission because you have failed. And instead, Joshua is going to complete your mission. Well, now here's Elijah, and he's not able to complete his mission. He's failed. He's grumbling. He's complaining. He's blaming the people of Israel. He's painting the situation as it's worse than it actually is. He's not the only one who's left. And God won't let anyone kill him until it's time. And in fact, he never dies. God takes him to heaven in a whirlwind on the chariot. And yet, Elijah has grown faint-hearted because his faith is failing and he's despondent. He's angry at the people. He's impatient with God. And so, Just like Moses, Elijah doesn't get to finish his mission, but Elisha is going to be the one who is going to carry on the work of Elijah after Elijah is gone. And sadly, this is the way it is for many of us. We look at our own lives and and there's work that God has destined for us to do. There's work that he's called us to and empowered us to. He's equipped us for it. He's set up in his providence so that we have everything we need to be able to do his work joyfully. To not be overcome with the disobedience of other people. To not be overcome with despondency at the situation and how things aren't happening at the time and the way that we want them to happen. But instead, just to put our trust in God and do the work that he's given us to do. He won't allow you to burn out when you're doing the work that he wants you to do if you have faith in him. He's going to give you everything you need. You'll be able to accomplish the work. And the only reason we don't accomplish the work and someone else has to do it, God will always make sure his work gets done, He'll bring someone else to finish the work that you don't do. But you'll lose out on the reward of doing that work. And the only reason we don't complete the work that God has given us to do is because we lack faith. We don't trust God. And that lack of faith in God is what leads to the grumbling and the complaining and the despondency and the suicidal thoughts. It's lack of faith in God. But God is gracious. God is merciful. God is very patient with Elijah. He brings him here. To them out we don't know whether it was Elijah's idea whether it was God's idea the text isn't explicit it seems like maybe it was Elijah's idea now one thing I want to point out before we get too far into this section Elijah had fled for his life from Jezebel so that he can sit under a broom tree and ask God to kill him well if you wanted to die you could have just stayed in Israel Jezebel would have taken care of that for you See how irrational we get when we get into our depression and despondency. Oh, I just want to die. No, you don't. If you wanted to die, you would have let Jezebel kill you. He doesn't really want to die, he just feels that way. And sometimes people allow their feelings to carry them into places that they know are not true. Don't allow your feelings to get carried away in this manner. So, Elijah wanted to die, Moses wanted to die. There's another prophet named Jonah who also wanted to die. And the same way that God dealt with Jonah is the same way that he's dealing here with Elijah. Remember what God said to Jonah when Jonah said, just kill me, I'm so upset with this situation, I just want to die. God said, do you have good reason to be angry? He didn't make a statement, he asked a question. And that is a good practice to pick up on. God is very wise and we want to be wise like God. And so if you find someone who's angry, somebody who's depressed, somebody who's despondent, somebody who's burnt out, just ask them questions. God asks Elijah, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Now, God asks the question and Elijah gives his response. It's not a very good response by Elijah. He's kind of acting like a child. And then God asks the question again. And Elijah gives the exact same answer even after God has displayed his glory and his power on the mount of God with the whirlwind and the earthquake and the fire and the low whisper. Now you remember back to Moses when Moses was on the mountain that he asked to see the glory of God. And God said, okay, I'll make all my glory pass by in front of you and I'll hide you here in the rock and I'll cover you with my hand. You can't see my face or you'll die, but I'll let you see the back, the afterglow of my glory, so to speak. And as Moses experienced that, so Elijah experiences it here in the same place, in the same way. But the scripture makes clear. That even though there was the whirlwind and the earthquake and the fire, that that wasn't where God dwelt. That wasn't what we really need to see or know about God. And that's the way it was with Moses also. That when Moses saw the theophany, there's no record of what he saw. It just says that God's glory passed by. But what is recorded is what God said in that moment back in Exodus, where God declared his own name. That he's the God who's merciful, he's the God who's compassionate, he's the God who's slow to anger, he's the God who's abounding in loving kindness, keeping covenant faithfulness to thousands of generations for those who put their trust in him. That's what God was revealing, and that's what he's revealing today. You don't have to go to Sinai and you don't have to see the earthquake and the fire and, and hear the whirlwind. What you need to hear is this voice of God that tells you who he is and what he's doing so that you can put your trust in him. And so that you don't get overcome by all the evil that is around you, by all the grumbling of people in the world, by all the heresy that is within the church, by all of the apostasy, by all of the wickedness that fills the culture, all the work that Satan is doing in the hearts of those who don't believe. You don't get overwhelmed by that. You don't become depressed by that because you remember who the Lord is. That's the key right there. And you put your trust in him, that he's going to take care of it in his time and his way. And so as Elijah maintains his bad attitude and he just doesn't change, he doesn't budge, he says the exact same thing to God the second time after God has been so gracious to him. God says, okay, I'll let you know what my plan is. There's three guys that are going to finish this work that you've begun. And what was the work that Elijah had begun? Well, it was the work of eliminating Baal worship in Israel. Elijah, his mission, his goal, was to turn the people back to the Lord and away from the Baal. And so the work is going to be completed by Haziel, Jehu, and Elisha. Two kings and a prophet, as you see in verses 15 and 16. So the Lord lets Elijah in on the plan here. He says, okay, you're not happy with how things are going? You wanted to see more change more quickly? Well, here's my plan, and I'll let you in on it. Jehu is going to be king over Israel. Hazael is going to be king over Syria. And these two men are going to kill the Baal worshippers in Israel. And anybody that they leave that has escaped, well, then Elisha is going to mop up, and this is going to be the end of Baal worship in Israel. God says. I've got a plan, I've got it under control, I'm going to accomplish the mission, just not exactly how and not exactly in the way and not exactly when you want it to happen. It's going to happen when I want it to happen, according to my plan. Is that all right with you, Elijah? So, God encourages Elijah, saying, You are not alone. I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the kiss of worship, bow down before the idol and kiss the toes or something like that. So God says, the situation is not as bad as you think, and it's going to get better. Hang in there. But since you're too weak to carry on, I'm going to have Elisha take over for you. So, verses 19 through 21. So he departed from there, that's Mount Sinai, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. This is to say goodbye. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Now this word for assist... It's the same word that's used for Joshua back in the Pentateuch. Joshua was the helper. He was the assistant, the understudy, who then finished what Moses was not able to finish because of his weakness. And that's where we still see it today. The best of men are men at their best. They're weak. They're not going to finish all the work that God has given them to do, but God is working and he will get the work done, even if he has to do it through other people. So, A wonderful lesson here about how God works even when we fail. Our hope and our trust is in him. So remember, when you want to rebuke someone, don't come on strong, but instead find a way to ask a question. Say, why are you feeling this way? Then get them to talk about it. And then you can try to help them understand perhaps they're not seeing the Lord. They're not seeing the whole picture Perhaps their feelings are because they have a lack of faith in the Lord. We want to help people the way that God helps Elijah, the way that he was patient with all of his servants. Now, Haziel, you'll be able to read about how he is God's instrument of judgment against the Baal worshippers in Israel in Second Kings chapter 8. And then Jehu, you can read about his mission and how he destroyed the worshippers of Baal as the next king, the new dynasty that takes over after the death of Ahab, Jezebel and their children, in Second Kings chapter nine. And then you can read about Elisha also here in this very important section of first and Second Kings. Remember, first and Second Kings originally one book. And here, it slows down to focus in on the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, a key pivotal point in Israel's history. Let's go ahead and continue then into chapter 20. We've looked at Elijah at Mount Sinai in chapter 19, and we're going to go on and look then at Ahab's last chance in chapter 20. I want to put Ahab and Elijah together here because you can see that both of them are going to have a similar problem, even though one is a righteous man and one is a wicked man, that in these chapters they both are despondent and they both respond to the word of the Lord kind of like children rather than as those who are full of faith. And so Ahab, chapter 20. God gives grace to Ahab that is remarkable. God is much more gracious with Ahab than I would have been. And we can learn something from this. Look at chapter 20. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, not Assyria, this is Syria, also known as Aram, because it's not far from Israel. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up And closed in on Samaria, that's the capital city of Ahab's kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel. And he fought against it. And he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine. Your best wives and children also are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours and all that I have. So Ahab is basically throwing up the white flag here. He sees the huge army that's surrounding him. He knows he doesn't really have any chance of withstanding this siege. And he says, okay, I'll be a vassal. I'll acknowledge you. I'll bend the knee. You're the high king. I'm the lower king. Let's call a truce here and I'll acknowledge that you're in charge. But that's not really what Ben-Hadad was looking for. Whatever background is here that we're missing, Ben-Hadad doesn't just want... Ahab to be a vassal. He wants to completely humiliate and subjugate. And so, as the king answers, the messengers come again in verse 5 and said, thus says Ben-Hadad, I sent to you saying, deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children. I don't want you to just say they're mine. I want them now. That is what he's saying. Nevertheless, I will send my servants to to you tomorrow about this time, and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants and lay hands on whatever pleases you and take it away. Everything you like, we're going to take it because I'm mad at you. And then verse 7, the king of Israel is like, oh no, this is worse than I thought. So he called all the elders of the land and he said, mark now and see how this man is seeking trouble. It's like he wants to fight. He's not willing to just let me submit. For he sent to me for my wives and my children, and for my silver and my gold, and I did not refuse him. And all the elders and all the people said to him, do not listen or consent. So he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell my lord the king, at all that you first demanded of your servant, I will do. I'll be your vassal. I'll I'll acknowledge your supremacy. But this thing I cannot do. I can't be humiliated. I can't lose my wives and my children and my gold and my silver. He pushed it too far basically, and, and I think that's probably what Ben-Hadad was trying to do. I think Ben-Hadad knew that Ahab would not submit to this, and Ben-Hadad wants a fight, and so he's got it. Now, picks up then, Ben-Hadad sent to him again in verse 10, the gods do so to me and more also. There's that same oath formula that we heard from the lips of the queen in the previous chapter. If the dust of Samaria shall suffice for handfuls, for all the people who follow me, Basically, you know, my army is so big, we're going to pulverize you. And the king of Israel answered him, Let not him who straps on his armor boast himself as he who takes it off. So he musters as much courage as he can. And he says, well, we're severely outnumbered, but we have to fight, so might as well put on a bold face. When Ben-Hadad heard this message, as he was drinking with the kings in the booths, he said to his men, take your positions. And they took their positions against the city. Now, here's where God steps in in a, a most unusual way. You wouldn't think that after Ahab had been the worst king that Israel had ever had, and after he had given three and a half years of drought to teach this king a lesson, and then showed him the sign on Mount Carmel that the Lord was God, and that his wife, in promoting all this wicked Baal worship, was completely wrong, and yet he refuses to repent and he allows his wife to chase off Elijah, you would think God would say, I'm done with you, Ahab. But no. God says, I'm going to give you another grace. I'm going to give you another chance. This is amazing. So a prophet came near to King Ahab of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. The reason why God does what he does with the people of Israel You can read this throughout all the prophets, from the books of Kings and the historical books into the writing prophets. God is not hiding his reason, his purpose, his motivation. The reason why God does everything that he does is for the sake of his name. He wants to make it known that he is God that the Lord Yahweh, the one who has chosen Israel and covenanted himself to the people, the descendants of Abraham, he does everything that he does in order to make known to the world that he is God and that there is no other. That's his motivation. That's his purpose. His chief motivation. I'm not saying there's not other motivations. God is compassionate. He's gracious. All that. But his chief motivation, very clearly in the words of the prophets, is he does it to make known who he is that he is the Lord. Let's uh, take a look at this point, at Isaiah chapter 48. Come with me to Isaiah chapter 48. As I said, whether you're in the historical books or the writing prophets, the message is loud and clear. Here's one example out of many that I could pull out from Isaiah. And I want to pick it up there in Isaiah 48, verse 8. He's speaking to Israel and he says, You, Israel, have never heard. You've never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously, and that from before birth, you were called a rebel. God says, I knew when I called you that you were going to worship Baal. I knew that you were going to kill my prophets. I knew that your kings were going to be wicked. I knew that you'd be worshiping on the high places and disobeying my commandments. I knew that you would reject me. Verse 9, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. Why is Ahab not dead? Why are the people of Israel not dead? For God's name. That's why. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Those three and a half years of drought, I was refining you. I was trying you in the furnace of affliction. Now Isaiah is writing much later, but this is God's pattern throughout all the history of Israel. So you can apply it to all those different situations. Now, verse 11, for my own sake, for my own, he says it twice. He says it over and over again. It's not hard to figure out. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. I'm not going to give my glory to Baal. I'm not going to give my glory to Molech, that abomination. I'm not going to give my glory to the gods of the Babylonians or the Persians or any other people. I'm going to show that there is one God, and that is me. That's the purpose of God's dealings with Israel. That's why he's written it down. That's why he's given it to us. That's why we're here today, so that we can know who God is. And God was working over generations. He was working with peoples in places and times, and they didn't see the whole picture. And God said, just do what I tell you to do. Play your part, and you will be blessed. And Elijah, he was doing that pretty well for a while, but then he got to a point where he was just like, Oh, woe is me! Things are terrible! There's a reason why things are terrible. God is working for his name. And he's going to show in that terrible situation his mercy and his grace to a man like Ahab. And he's going to give him a sign. And he's going to give him victory in the battle that he does not deserve. So the prophet comes and says, I'm going to give you the battle because I want you to know that I'm the Lord. Now, say, well, Ahab doesn't repent. He never turns his back on his wife and their evil worship. That's true. He doesn't. But God gave him a chance. God gave him every chance. And when Ahab refuses, that doesn't mean that other people aren't noticing. Just because Ahab and Jezebel fail to repent doesn't mean that other people aren't noticing. And there is going to be a revival. There is going to be a turnaround. There is going to be the destruction of Baal and all his worshipers. Not because Ahab repents. He hardens his heart and dies. And other people see that. and They're like, oh, we don't want to follow Ahab's path. So God has many reasons for everything that he does that go way beyond anything you could understand. And you might look back at the situation and say, well, that's not fair. That's not right. That's not how I would do it. Well, that's because you are finite. And you don't see and you don't know. And stop thinking that you see and know better than God. Humble yourself and say, Lord, you are God. I'm going to do what you tell me to do and trust you with the results. Stop leaning on my own understanding. What a fool does. All right, so back to the text. So Ahab says, by whom? And he said, the prophet, thus says the Lord, by the servants of the governors of the districts. Then he said, Ahab, Who shall begin the battle? He answered, you. Then he mustered the servants of the governors of the districts, and they were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people of Israel, 7,000. Not much of an army he's got hemmed up in Samaria against this mighty force that surrounded him. they went out at noon, while Ben-Hadad was drinking himself drunk in the booth. I don't need to be sober for this battle. We've got such massive numbers. I can drink all I want and still win. He and the 32 kings who helped him The servants of the governors of the districts went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, Men are coming out from Samaria. He said, If they've come out for peace, take them alive. Or if they've come out for war, take them alive. So these went out of the city, the servants of the governors of the districts, and the army that followed them, and each struck down his man. The Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. But Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, escaped on a horse with horsemen. And the king of Israel went out and struck the horses and chariots and struck the Syrians with a great blow. Then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, Come, strengthen yourself, and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, so they were stronger than us. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, Remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their place. And muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. So the prophet knows they're going to try again. God has Syria try again. And God has a plan in all of this as well. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel mustered and were provisioned and went against them. So Ahab obeyed. He's taken precautions. He knows they're going to come and fight again. So he's listened to the prophet. And they've got the provisions and they've got a better supply. and The people are still very small compared to the opposing army. The people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, No, this is not Elijah. Elijah, I thought you were the only one. Where'd this guy come from? Oh, you didn't know about him. Well, that's because you don't know a lot, don't you? You don't know a lot. So, he comes and he tells him, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Why is he doing it? So that Ahab can know that he is the Lord. Is Ahab going to repent? No, he's not. Does God still want him to know? He still wants him to know. There's other people also that God wants to know. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down of the Syrians 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city, and his servant said to him, "'Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. "'Let us put sackcloth around our waists and ropes on our heads "'and go out to the king of Israel. "'Perhaps he will spare your life.' "'So they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads "'and went to the king of Israel and said, "'Your servant Ben-Hadad says, "'Please let me live. "'Oh, how the tides have turned. "'Your wives are mine, your gold is mine, your silver is mine. "'You're not even a worthy opponent. "'I can drink myself drunk on the day of battle.' Now your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. And he said, does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it from him and said, yes, your brother, Ben-Hadad. Then he said, go and bring him. So Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities that my father took from your father I will restore. And you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. Well, this, to a modern audience, would seem like a good thing. You know, the good guy is always supposed to spare the bad guy, no matter how many dumb things the bad guy has done. You always show mercy. Never do anything to bring justice. That's not the way the Bible goes. That's not how God sees things. As a time where your enemy needs to be put down. If you don't put down the enemy when you have the opportunity, it's going to cost you. That's what we have here. Don't go to the world for wisdom. Go to the Bible for wisdom. There is such a thing as a foolish mercy. There is such a thing as a foolish mercy. And here, reading the situation, I think Ahab's foolish mercy is motivated by the fact that he knows he's going to need allies against Assyria. Assyria is a threat at this time. He's going to fight a major battle against the Assyrians, probably after these events. And so he's trying to make peace with Ben-Hadad. Now I get to be the, the big guy and you get to be the little guy, but we still need each other to stand against the king of Assyria. So I think he's still thinking selfishly. This isn't a pure act of mercy. This is probably more posturing and politicizing on his part. That's how I would read it. But let's see how God responds to it in verse 35. A certain man of the sons of the prophets, oh, another prophet, wow, Elijah, you are so wrong. A certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Now let's stop there for a moment. Does this seem odd to you? Here we've got Jezebel and Ahab killing the Lord's prophets and setting up a house for Baal in the capital city of God's people, the people of Israel. And God spares them and he gives them victory in battle and he he sends them prophets and he shows them this abundant mercy. And then you've got this poor prophet over here who doesn't want to lay a hand on his fellow prophet and punch him in the face. He's like, I can't do that. I'm sorry. you know, Just find somebody else. And because he's not willing to punch the guy in the face, he gets killed by a lion later that day. Like, what? (sighs) Once again, you don't know very much. God knows very much. And God can deal severely with this prophet for his reasons and for his purposes that are good, and he can deal mercifully with Ahab for his reasons and his purposes that are good and you don't have to be informed as to why it's fair for this prophet to die and for Ahab to live. Ahab's going to die in his time. This guy would have died in his time. We all die. God decides when and where and how we die for his reasons and for his purposes. And he doesn't have to explain it to you. So, he found another man. And said, Strike me, please. That guy, you can be sure, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes, like he'd been in the battle. And as the king passed, he cried out to the king and said, King, your servant went out in the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. Now, a talent of silver is a lot of money. It's about 100 times the cost of a slave. And it's 34 kilograms of silver. Now, most people back in those days did not have that kind of silver lying around. So, unless you're a rich man, you're dead. Your life shall be for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. Vexed and sullen. That kind of sounds like Elijah. Elijah was vexed and sullen when he was sitting under the broom tree. And now here, King Ahab is vexed and sullen. Whenever we don't like what God is doing, we get vexed and we get sullen. That's what we call a bad mood. Sometimes I'll tell my kids, I'm in a bad mood today, just to warn you. Vexed and sullen, the cure for that is faith in God. Now, the king of Israel is going to die as is prophesied but it's going to be at the right time and the right place as God determines. Let's draw some conclusions and some applications here from looking at Elijah and Ahab and God's dealing with Elijah and Ahab. God's dealings are marvelous. And so when we come to the application, we have two major points of discussion. Number one, how do you deal with discouragement and depression? We've given you some clues, some hints along the way here on how to deal with discouragement and depression, not only in ourselves, but also with helping other people, asking questions, trying to find out why people feel the way that they feel. But ultimately what we're trying to do here is we're trying to act like the Lord in how he deals with Moses, how he dealt with Jonah, how he dealt with Elijah when they were so depressed that they wished for death. I think it's interesting to compare Ahab's self-pity with Elijah's self-pity. How were they similar? How were they different? Maybe you can discuss that with your family this week. This other thing that I think is very important to look into, besides dealing with discouragement and depression, is understanding God's patience and God's severity. How do you feel about God's patience towards Ahab and his severity towards the unnamed prophet? When is it wrong to show mercy to an enemy? Is it ever wrong? How do you know if it's right or wrong to show mercy in a situation? The Bible is so rich, and there's so much here that you could bring out and talk about and preach on. I have to choose an angle that I'm going to take when I come to a rich text like this. And, and so the angle that I've chosen is dealing with discouragement and depression and understanding God's patience and severity.